0: Welcome to Intentional Teaching, a podcast aimed at educators to help them develop foundational teaching skills and explore new ideas in teaching. I'm your host, Derek Breff. I hope this podcast helps you be more intentional in how you teach and in how you develop as a teacher over time. Back in high school, I had a graphing calculator that I used in my calculus course. My teacher, Ms. Steelman, did a great job of teaching with calculators using the technology to help us explore the concepts and techniques in the mathematics. For several decades now, math teachers have had to figure out what role these devices would play in their classrooms and in student learning. Today, teachers in a variety of disciplines are facing similar questions about the use of a different kind of technology, writing generators powered by artificial intelligence. A few years ago, you could assume that if a student submitted an essay in your class, some human wrote that essay, hopefully the student in question, That's no longer true, however, as AI-powered writing generators get better and better at producing intelligible text. On today's episode of Intentional Teaching, I talk with Robert Cummings, Associate Professor of Writing and Rhetoric and Executive Director of Academic Innovation at the University of Mississippi. Bob has spent his career exploring what's coming in terms of teaching and technology, particularly in the field of writing instruction. For example, he wrote a book on teaching with Wikipedia back in 2009, back when most college instructors were forbidding their students from using Wikipedia. These days, Bob is collaborating with computer scientists to figure out what role AI technologies might have in writing instruction. I reached out to Bob to talk with me about the state of affairs in AI and writing, and we had a wide ranging conversation that I'm excited to share here on the podcast. Thank you, Bob, for being on the Intentional Teaching Podcast. I'm really glad to have you as our guest on this episode to talk about artificial intelligence using perhaps some human intelligence um, to do so. Um, First, uh, Bob, tell us kind of uh, what you do at the University of Mississippi. What's your what's your title
1: and what's your what's your job there? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Derek. Um, my title at the University of Mississippi is Executive Director of Academic Innovation, and so I. Uh, one way to think about it is I try to help us look around corners and think about what's coming next in terms of teaching and learning. Um, that involves both importing external practices, but also just as much trying to lift up internal practices and help our faculty develop new teaching learning practices um, depending on what their areas of interest are and where they're going next and what they're trying to improve on.
0: Nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, That's the space I like to be in.
1: Yeah. And it's about helping people figure what's around, I mean, what's around their corner. So if, you know, if there's an aspect of teaching practice that has, um, it's not necessarily novel, but it might be novel to you. That's uh, our we're game to help people figure that out too.
0: So before we continue to look ahead, let's look back just a little bit. Um, sure. Bob, can you, uh, this is a question I like to ask some of my guests. Can you tell us about a time when you realized you wanted to be an educator? I think
1: it has to do a little bit with that. I feel like I've never really fit in as a learner So I have been uh, someone that's always been disruptive in the classroom, not intentionally so, but I learn through dialogue. So I learn by listening to somebody or talking with someone else or receiving a new idea, thinking about the new idea, but questioning the new idea, just sort of endlessly iterating over it. Um, And that's kind of a really difficult can be a really difficult situation (laughs) if you're a teacher. And I didn't realize that at first. Um, And so um, sometimes that would be interpreted in ways that I was being intentionally disruptive or trying to hijack the classroom. And so I had to sort of learn to uh, moderate my learning style a little bit. And so I think in some ways that gave me an appreciation for, for teaching and what challenge, why that would present a challenge because I was really completely um, unaware of that. And then also I knew that um, particularly the way that I had engaged technology um, was unusual. So I remember, um, and I think we all have these sort of like moments where a comment comes at you from a teacher and you just – you're, I don't know, it, it has an outsized impact on you. And it ma- might not have been something that was intended. Uh, so I had a high school teacher um, and uh, it was in a, a computing class and um, we had been given this common assignment and it was a coding assignment. And so I knew a little something about it was basic we were coding and basic and so i knew something about that and so they'd given us the he'd given us this assignment the class said well that one person just said well okay if we need to see another student for help who should we talk to and so um, there was a guy in the class who was really good at math. And th- they said, well, you know, if if, if you guys want to talk to each other about your approaches, talk to Patrick. And then he said, but I don't know, if you're trying to do something weird or unusual, talk to Bob. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was because I wasn't a great math student, but um, I really took to – programming languages and so my Mm -hmm. approach to this problem he already knew i was coming at it from a completely different angle um and so i don't know You, you take those comments in an outsized way sometimes when you're a student and the teacher has authority two things one is i i started to learn that i was sort of disruptive in the way that i learned that made me curious about teaching and then two i was really um interested in the fact that uh as, in, as, as teachers, we can have more influence and power than we ever realize mm. in ways that offhandedly uh, might shape people's future. Well, speaking of computer science, let's talk
0: about the term artificial intelligence. <laughs> so I, I hear AI, that term, used in a lot of different contexts. Me too. Um, and I think it can mean a lot of different things. But in the context of writing, what does AI mean? And does it include spell check? Because I kind of like my spell check.
1: <laughs> you know, I got a lot to say on that. Um, so, first of all, I'm not a computer scientist, so I'm not really qualified to answer the bigger questions about what AI is or is not. Um, I have been using a definition that came from Michael Woldridge, who's a computer scientist at the other Oxford. And um, he uh, has a definition that's something along the lines of, um, helping uh, or trying to use uh, computer technology to uh, perform tasks that human brains or human bodies would otherwise do, which I think is a this is not a bad one. It kind of puts us in the center of things rather than the you know the 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 Hollywood version of AI. And the, the you know, Derek, I think the thing that I'm interested in is probably more generally digital writing. So the the part it's interesting you said spell check right. So I think a lot about spell check. I was very interested in spell check as a technology, uh, and my current research project is on the use of Google Smart Compose, and I'm interested in how Google Smart Compose or other predictive text sentence completion technologies affect the writing process. So I'm very interested in understanding what a composing brain space looks like okay. and how when what you're using to uh, be a sort of a tool for expressing yourself starts writing back to you. To me, I see that as an inherently disruptive process. and But I'm very aware that other writers don't feel that way at all. And I'm aware that it varies of according to the rhetorical situation. So it very much is seen as Mm. an asset if you're trying to do something that might be very well-defined and repetitive and not involve a lot of original thought or original expression into a known audience. But if there's other types of more open-ended tasks, I think there's more room for seeing it as interference. Um, Mm. So it's, I don't think that is really settled as a question yet. So um, I'm going to be doing research, uh, an experiment here in uh, starting in two weeks, a partner with someone, in computer science and a great guy, um, assistant professor named Ty Lee. And we are going to um, get 50 different writing samples. I'm sorry, 100 writing samples. 50 using Google Smart Compose and 50 without and have asked these people to write on the same prompt. And we're going to be able to compare the form and the process. So we'll compare a writing product and writing process. And due to some of Ty's brilliance, we're going to be able to create, I think for the first time, as far as I can see, some measures that say, all right, um, Derek's writing a sentence. He's gotten an autocomplete suggestion. He's going to have three possible outcomes. He's going to accept it. He's going to edit it, or he's going to delete it. Okay. And how long does he take on those? Then we'll compare those measures to what Derek's non-Smart Compose-enabled peers do. Um, compare the structure of the writing and compare the, the lexical uh, range that's there mm. to try to look at some ways that we think about curiosity and creativity and expression. That's the idea going in. That is very staid compared to what's going on <laughs> right now. This is ancient three-year-old technology uh, <laughs> that we're looking at. Yeah. This is not using the uh, the occurrence uh you know writing models uh large language models that we have that are really getting getting everyone's attention uh, and I'm hopeful that what we're also doing is ty is doing a lot of coding um to enable us to make these measurements and i'm I'm hopeful that these tools that we're building mm, yeah. will enable us to take the experimenting forward into the large language models where there's so much interest i don't know if I answered your question. <laughs>
0: um i think you did and i think you're i mean one of the reasons i i i mentioned check is because i feel like if even if those of us who haven't thought much about artificial intelligence and writing we probably use tools writing aids of various kinds all the time and may not think of them like we think of that robot that tried to take Mm -hmm. over the world in the will smith movie ai right like it's there's a big gap between those two but This is Future Derek jumping in with a quick correction. That Will Smith movie that I was referencing is actually called I, Robot, and not AI. There is a movie called AI, but Will Smith is not in it. Spell check, grammar check, autocomplete, right? When I am texting my wife to say I'm heading home, Autocomplete yep. does a really good job of knowing who I'm talking to and what I'm likely That's to right. say. And when I type heading, home is one of the suggestions. And I have just saved myself three key presses. <laughs> right. Yep. And so it's a small example, but it also I think illustrates what you said about having a, a known audience and a targeted genre, right? There are, are places yep. where those types of tools can be very effective. And it sounds yeah. like your question is, well, if we, if, if we move out from that, you know, texting your wife, you're heading home, to other types of writing, are these tools helpful? Or are they disruptive? Do they slow us down? Do they speed us up? Do they help us be more creative or less creative? Because as you note, autocomplete may be an old technology, but there are a lot of other technologies that are coming. And you could ask those same questions about those technologies.
1: I agree, and I'm excited to 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 do this work and to to move forward with it. I think that the uh, I agree with exactly everything you're saying. Like I don't want to lose my autocomplete functionality on my phone. It's helpful, you know. It's a using your phone to send a text message is a compromised uh, situation for expression, and yet it's not one that we would want to give up because it gives us immediacy. It gives us this context. It's just, it's a beautiful communication tool for certain needs and certain messages and certain contexts. So, right. Understanding what the tool does um, and understanding how you want to use it um, is, is, is key. One of the issues there is that two issues I can think of immediately is the technologies are evolving so quickly it's very difficult for us to understand the full Mm. scope of the tool so it's not like someone's coming to us with a proposition and saying this is a pipe wrench it is really good for helping you tighten up a nut around a pipe you may want to be careful on plastic pipes though because it may break something, you know, like you don't, you're not getting that as a proposition. These are things that just appear in the technology that you're using. And I think it has a lot to do with the way the people that develop the technologies look at writing. Mm-hmm. I often hear them talk about writing as a problem to solve. Interesting. They also, they, they like to talk about solutions a lot. Um, and so I don't, you know, I have a bit of a – that might be unfairly reductive. They're obviously very intelligent people. I just come from a different background that has sort of a respect a – more maybe a, a, a respect for the range of writing genres, the range of approaches, and the range of goals that, that writers might have. And so I think that the technology is developing very quickly, and then it's never presented – in such a way that it's a defined tool, and it's also a black box technologically, often for proprietary reasons. So there's a lot of consternation, I think,
0: in some parts of higher ed about these AI tools that seem to be capable of generating, you know, student essays. Right? We assign our students to write an essay, and you know, here's three paragraphs, and now we don't know did the student write this because did did they did they prompt an AI tool to write it? Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Did they write most of it, but a couple of sentences were enhanced by Google smart compose, right? Mm-hmm. W- would we have consternation over spell check or autocomplete? Uh, maybe not. Yes. Right. And so, yes. you know, good is questions. there value in a student who can come up with a really good prompt for an AI generator? Right. That's as I'm learning, that's not trivial. Uh, and so maybe well, that's, that's a, something that's, an, that's worth it. That's an employable skill. Right, right. Exactly. So, so when it comes and and the other thing I want to acknowledge is that you know you are in in writing and rhetoric, right the the teaching of writing is is your is your jam <laughs> um, and so as you think about the teaching of writing, what are some things that you're excited to explore? Um, tools that might help students learn to write better, learn to be better writers?
1: Yeah, I think it's such a great question. I'm glad you asked it. you know the first thing I think about is I think a lot about uh peter elbow and peter elbow's struggle with writer's block and i think of all the people out there that struggle with writer's block how much these tools are going to help them oh yeah because it's going to put them seemingly and i think it's really important to bracket this off but it's going to seemingly put them in dialogue um which might be a mental state which is Makes it easier to produce text. So for folks that feel bottled up sometimes, well, everybody does from time to time. But for folks who really struggle with getting fluency and getting getting things moving on the page, I think these these a lot of the AI writing generation tools are going to be really really good. I mean, they're going to change uh, some of their struggles. I hope. Let me jump in. So,
0: for yeah. listeners who haven't used one of these tools, or maybe have a vague notion, what might that look like for a student? Can you can you give a, yeah. a concrete example?
1: Yeah. So it's important to distinguish. I think uh, when we talk about Google Smart Compose, we call those writing assistive technologies. But the tools that I'm shifting to talk about now, the ones that are capturing a lot of attention like OpenAI's Playground, for instance, uh, we'll call those writing generative technologies or writing generators. And and that's just because um, you can put a phrase in and you will get a much larger textual response than you first put in. Um, And now, seemingly, it's in response to what you put in. And from a technical standpoint, it is in response to what you entered into whatever the system is that you're using. but it's not the response that you might assign it, and so that's sort of like the the card tri- the parlor trick that's happening right now. I think to users, they're putting words, in. it might be something along the, lines, along the lines of "Is smoking bad for you?" You know, knowing the answer, but just testing the system to see what kind of response it gives you, and it gives you a pretty impressive response. Um, that's not because there was cognition behind that, and in that case, you might get you know four or five paragraphs. From the tool, explaining why smoking is bad for you, four or right? five would be a bit of a stretch right now, um okay, you might get a good paragraph on that now, you can okay. coach it right if you If you start to use the tool, you can coach it up to give yourself longer responses, and it might be a period of three months, it might be a period of nine months before yes, we'll get an entire essay out of it, and I might be mispeaking like. The folks that really stay on top of this and know that developments on the every 24 to 48 hour basis might be might tell me, no, you're wrong, Bob. We can get a full paragraph or a full essay out of that question. Is smoking bad for you? But I think the real thing to think, of, well, one of the issues to think about is it's not giving you that response because it understands what you've entered. Yes. It's only giving you that response because it has incredibly fast processing on incredibly deep databases, to know what the probability is on what words will follow the words that have been entered. It's just, it's probability and associations. Okay. There's, there's no cognition. Huh. And the real problem that we're going to experience as teachers and the real problem we're going to experience as students and the real problem we're going to experience is a public is... We've never been in a situation, at least that I can think of, where writing has been divorced from thought. So previously, all every time you encountered writing somewhere, behind that writing was thinking. It might not have been great thinking. <laughs> sure. It might have been a stranger. It might have been a group of people. It might have been plagiarism. But at the core, somewhere there was thinking. And there no longer is. So we're not, I don't feel like I don't feel that as, as a public, and as educators certainly, and as students, we're really prepared to look at to to, to separate that out, and that's something that we're going to have to be able to do now going forward. We're going to have to be able to look at a piece of writing and say, okay, this is a piece of writing. I don't know if there was thought behind it. Uh, so it gets into. Uh, really into stanley fish territory i don't know if you've read stanley fish is there a text in this class but it was sort of like um reader response theory and some of the other literary theory which i'll need to go back and brush up on now i suppose but um it it gets into the idea of where does meaning get assigned is it upon the reader reading the text Mm. is it upon the author writing the text um and so different people said different things but it really hasn't felt like it has as much importance as it does mm-hmm. now
0: well, and i'll say i've 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 probably uh without meaning to followed the conversations around ai generated art more than I have yes. AI generated text, mainly because there's usually a visual that gets shared on twitter, and so it's it's kind of easier to 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 share about on social media. And, you know, my wife is a former high school art teacher and going to a museum, an art museum with her is a great experience because she has ways of looking at a piece of art that aren't in my toolbox. Right. I'm learning how to do this. Um, And I know, you know, when you you encounter written text, it's the same way. There's there's this reader response and there's lots of different ways to be a reader and to have those responses. And some of them don't depend on the author's intent. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so whether or not there was intent there, maybe this this was a, a piece of art generated by AI without human thinking directly related. I mean, there was human thinking that created the AI, but it's not actually um, directly informing the created output. And that's maybe happening with text too. And so how do we make meaning of this, even if we have no idea what the
1: intent behind it was? Well... Like this is something we as humans have long done actually. Right. Well, and we also have algorithms that read. So there has been a conversation among, (laughs) Oh wow. I mean, quote unquote read, right? So there has been a conversation among folks that are computer savvy, that are also writing teachers about teaching algorithms. So like the way to think of audience now is to think about, think about it algorithmically because anything that's going to be posted on social media is going to be picked up on by algorithms. And so, think of, you know, some people would argue, think of your true audience as being the algorithms themselves.
0: Oh, wow. Which is, I guess, a a more complex version of what I've learned on Twitter, which is if you include a link to something off of Twitter, the Twitter algorithm is less likely to show your tweet to a lot of people. (laughs) So I will will describe what I'm doing in one tweet, and I will follow up in a second tweet with a link to the thing. Right. And so I'm, I'm composing based in part on the algorithm as, as my intended audience.
1: Right. So, well, I can say, I can um, say from the, I'll say like straight, straight off about the visual generative business. It makes me really glad to be on the writing side of things Um, because (laughs) the, uh, the, the, I listened to hard fork this weekend and they had a great episode on, uh, you know, generative AI and they had, um ahmad mastak who's uh stability ai uh ceo and this is not an exact quote but he said um that the world has been creatively constipated and we're about to let it poop rainbows well
0: i will have to put a link to that um interview (laughs) yeah in the the show notes i feel like there's a lot to unpack there
1: (laughs) there is it's a really it's a really good show um And uh, I just, it's like a show I'm going to have to listen to a couple times. Um, Yeah. One of the other um, sources that I've leaned on a bit that I've enjoyed um, is an essay by Sam Altman, who is a principal at OpenAI. His essay is entitled uh, Moore's Law for Everything. And so it's a very interesting read um, in the sense that he sees the arrival of AI as the way to drop costs for everyone on everything. It's a really expansive point of view. Wow. Um, yeah. But he says, you know, human labor is a, is a factor in costs for everything. And so w- long term, what we're talking about is dropping the cost of the input of human labor. I think there's a lot of ground to cover between here and that particular vision, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but it is, it is a surprisingly egalitarian spin on the arrival of AI, which perhaps uh, someone who's a principal at OpenAI benefits from floating as an argument, but nonetheless, it's a really interesting one. So, so yeah, let's go back to the, the writing classroom, yeah. right? And, and I'll
0: say also, one of the things, one of the reasons I like to talk to people who know writing pedagogy is because a lot of us who are not in departments of writing and rhetoric end up teaching writing in one fashion or another, sure. right? We teach writing in our disciplines. We teach first year writing seminars. Um, we, we have students learn through writing. We have students express their learning through writing, right? So So there's a lot here. So I've heard of a couple of other things that we might be able to have students at least play with right now, right? So, you know, what if I ask my student to use an AI writing generator to do a first draft of an essay and then I ask my student to revise that essay. Mm-hmm. Right? What what do you make of that as a as a teacher of writing?
1: Yeah, it's I kind of move yeah, it is very interesting and you kind of jumped around your your original question there. Um so one thing I would say is that the folks here in writing and rhetoric, um, we've got a team of writing teachers who are doing pretty much exactly that. So we've decided okay. that the way to to work on this is to invite our students in and to do it together because these tools are going to be there and they're going to be using them whether we invite them in to do it or not. So that's, what the, that's the first thing. And so, the, yes, I, had, I, I attended a, a workshop on the use of Uh, AI writing generators back in the summer. And there was, um, oh my gosh, I've got to go back and look for her name. Um, there was a speaker there who was, um, also a punk rocker. She was the author of a book called broadband is about women, uh, in the early internet era. So it was great, great title. Um, (laughs) That's a great title. It is. It is a really wow. good title. Yeah. Um, and I, I I need to go look her look up her name. I'm sorry. It's escaping right now. But
0: This is Future Derek jumping in again. The author that Bob is trying to remember is named Claire L. Evans. She's the author of Broadband: The Untold Story of the Women Who Made the Internet.
1: As a artist, as a, as a as a musician, She and her collaborator, as her partner, they went and they knew something about coding. So they had, they decided to use AI in the creation of one of their albums. And so they took all of the music and put it into a database. And then they took all of their lyrics and they put it into a database. And then they started their composing process. So they got random, seemingly random outputs in their lyrics, and it wasn't like they just took those random outputs and started putting them into a song. They just looked at it, and every once in a while, something would come up, and they would say, huh, that's really interesting. And that would be Mm. a kernel of something they would explore. Same thing musically. They would get a lot of different notes that would come out, but then every once in a while, they would find something that they would want to explore, and that was their launching off part. So I would go back and say, hey, there's... What works about that for me as a writing teacher is that they had a very deliberative and defined process and they defined how they wanted to use AI in that process. Mm. So to me, that was like, it was a light bulb moment. I was like, that's how we can use it in the writing classroom. So Mm. I think the way forward for writing teachers with, with AI generative tools is to look at a tool, figure out, but figure out what the strengths and weaknesses of the tool are and Mm. design specific interactions with specific composing purposes, so if it's an invention stage, sure, go into OpenAI or go. Uh, you know, Framat is a tool that uh, writing and rhetoric is using because it has a sort of spatial canvas aspect to it. Um, so people who like to do, you know, visual uh, layout as they as part of their writing process, they could really interact with that. Allows you to see the structure of arguments and generate pro cons. Um, you know using it at the invention stage using it at the drafting stage using it at the revision stage there are ai tools that are, have strengths at finding sources so you could get to a certain point where you've got your four page essay on smoking is bad for you and you and the ai will help find help you find sources for this and then of course you could use any of number of the ai tools to give you a reader response so as long as we're able to sort of define, I think it can work if we define the purpose for the usage of the tool, the technology, and then uh, be very specific about how we want to apply it at that particular stage in a writing process.
0: For folks out there who are pretty new to this field, is there a tool or two that you might recommend that they use to kind of play around and kind of get their feet wet with uh
1: AI writing generation. I've used OpenAI a good bit. Vermont um, is out there, um, and I would lift it up as a tool that's it's interesting and kind of very useful uh, in the in the writing process. Um, Well, thank you, Bob. We've gone in a lot of different directions
0: here today. I appreciate the (laughs) conversation. You've given our listeners a lot to think about and some tools to play with. And I I do, I want to encourage our listeners to play with some of these tools. I think this is an area where it would be helpful to get your feet wet a little bit um, so that you can start maybe to have some conversations with your
1: students about them as well. Absolutely. Thanks, Bob. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Derek.
0: That was Robert Cummings, Associate Professor of Writing and Rhetoric, and Executive Director of Academic Innovation at the University of Mississippi. I really appreciated how Bob raised some big questions about writing and AI, while also providing some practical advice for instructors wanting to understand the space better. And while he acknowledges that writing generators and other AI technologies pose some significant challenges to teaching, he's also optimistic about how this tech might actually enhance teaching and learning in the coming years. I'm looking forward to tinkering with OpenAI and Fermat, the two tools that Bob recommended, to get my head around writing generators and what they can do. I firmly believe that calculators and similar technologies can make our math instruction more effective and more useful for our students. And I suspect that I'll feel the same about AI writing technologies once I get more used to them. During our interview, Bob dropped in, half a dozen or more references to scholars and their work as a good humanist might if you didn't catch all those footnotes along the way please check out the show notes for this episode i've included lots of bob's references as well as links to more information about bob and his work and please let me know if you have thoughts about the topics bob and i discussed in our conversation or if you've experimented with teaching with writing generators i would love to hear your thoughts on the future of writing instruction this episode of Intentional Teaching was produced and edited by me, Derek Bruff. See the show notes for links to my website, the sign-up form for the Intentional Teaching newsletter, which goes out most Thursdays, and my Patreon, which helps support the show. For just a few bucks a month, you get access to the occasional bonus episode, Patreon-only teaching resources, the archive of past newsletters, and a community of intentional educators to chat with. As always, thanks for listening.